Glad to have you here this morning. If you have your Bibles, if you would, take them out and turn to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 2. If you need a Bible, just raise your hand and Stephen and Stuart have Bibles in their hands. I'd love to bring one right to your seat so you can follow along with us. As you're turning to uh, Matthew chapter 2, let me say this before we get to our text this morning, that you only have 169 more shopping days until Christmas. Okay? Now here's the reality. If we celebrated what most scholars actually believe Jesus was born, you'd only have about 86 more days until Christmas. So I guess we can be thankful that, you know, the tradition has got it December 25th. But let me give you a few reasons before we get to our text. Why December 25th could not be the day that Jesus was born. According to Luke chapter 2, verses 7 and 8, we read that the shepherds were in the fields there watching over their sheep at the time of Jesus' birth. Well, here's the problem. Shepherds were not in the fields during the month of December. It was too cold and rainy in Judea. It's likely the shepherds were sought, you know, they would seek shelter for their flocks at night. So, so Luke's account suggests possibly maybe the end of summer, early fall. Then you have the census that Mary and Joseph, you know, they left Nazareth to go to, to uh, Bethlehem to register for. Well, censuses, they were not taken in the winter because temperatures would, would drop in the winter. It would be, you know, maybe freezing, below freezing. The, the road conditions would be worse. And so why would you want to take a census during, the, you know, the, the winter months like that? Because people wouldn't show up, so you wouldn't get an accurate count. So it had, the census had to be early. Then finally, the third reason that Christ's birth really wasn't in December is because Jesus wasn't born then. <laughs> Pretty simple, right? <laughs> okay, let me give you a, another reason. Think about it. When Elizabeth, this is John uh, the Baptist's mom, was in her sixth month of pregnancy, it's when Jesus was conceived according to Luke chapter 1. We then can approximate the time of year Jesus was born if we know when John was born. Now, John's father, Zacharias, was a priest serving in Jerusalem in the temple uh, during what's called the course of Abijah. Historical calculations indicate that this course of service corresponded between June 13th and June 19th in that year. It was during this time there in the temple that service that Zacharias learned that he and his wife Elizabeth would be having a child. So after he completed his service and traveled home, Elizabeth conceived, Luke chapter 1 tells us. Assuming John's conception uh, took place near the end of June, adding nine months from that day uh, would most likely have John's birth being in March. So then you add another six months, the difference in ages between John and Jesus, that brings us to the end of September as a likely time of Jesus' birth. Now you know the rest of the story. Or do you? (laughs) Because the message that I'm about to share with you will make null and void many Christmas cards and nativity sets that you set up at Christmas time. In a few moments, we're going to look at the wise men that came to worship the newborn king. Now, our real focus this morning is going to be looking at the contrast between true worshipers and false worshipers. But let's go ahead and read chapter 2. It's in its entirety to get the full context of it, but we're just going to point out a few things So as we go along. So we're not going to, you know, this morning we're not going to hit each verse per se. So when we get to like, you know, verse 7 and it's time to quit, you're not going, man, we still got 15 more verses to go. We're going to just read the whole thing and then we'll, we'll hit some of the verses along the way. Starting in verse 1, big section here. 
we read, Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we, we have seen his star in the east and have come to worship him. Well, when Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with them. And when he had gathered all the chief priests and the scribes of the people together, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. So they said to him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for thus it is written by the prophets, But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are not the least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod, when he had secretly called the wise men, determined from them what time the star appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the young child. And when you have found him, bring back word to me that I may come and worship him also. Yeah, right. Verse 9. When they had heard the king, they departed. And behold, the star which they had seen in the east went before them till it came and stood over where the young child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced with exceedingly great joy. And when they had come into the house, they saw the young child with Mary his mother and fell down and worshipped him. And when they had opened their treasures, they presented gifts to him, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Then being divinely divined, warned in the dream that they should not return to Herod, uh, they departed from their own country another way. Now when they departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream, saying, Arise, take the young child and his mother, flee to Egypt, and stay there until I bring you word, for Herod will seek the young child to destroy him. And when he arose, he took the young child and his mother by night and departed for Egypt, and was there until the death of Herod, that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet, saying, Out of Egypt I called my son. Then, verse 16, Herod, when he saw that he was deceived by the wise men, was exceedingly angry. And he sent forth and put to death all the male children who were in Bethlehem and in all its districts, from two years old and under, according to the time which he had determined from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by Jeremiah the prophet, saying, A voice was heard in Ramah, lamentation, weeping, and great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children, refusing to be comforted, because they are no more. Now when Herod was dead, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Arise, take the young child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel, for those who sought the young child's life are dead. Then he arose, took the young child and his mother, and came to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea instead of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. And being warned by God in a dream, he turned aside into the region of Galilee, and he came and dwelt in a city called Nazareth, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophet, he should be called a Nazarene. So the top of my message this morning is Christmas in July, part two, are true, true and false worshipers. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this time together, Lord. We thank you for this account of your son being born there in Bethlehem and the account of, of these wise men coming, Lord. And we pray, Lord, as we dig into this study this morning, that we would gain more than information, but application in our lives to change us and to draw us closer into our relationship with you. We pray, Lord, if there's anyone here that is, that is yet to surrender their heart and life to you, or they're not born again yet, Lord, would you especially touch their heart that they might see their need for you and come to know you as Lord and Savior. We thank you for this time, Lord, for the joy that it is to worship you in song and to continue to worship you through the study of your word. We ask your continued blessing and anointing upon our time. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. 
What I want to focus on this morning in this section of Scripture is three responses to the knowledge of Jesus Christ that are the same responses that we see today that people have towards Christ. And they'll either, number one, worship Him, number two, have apathy towards Him, or number three, hostility towards Him. And those are our three points this morning if you're taking notes. Uh, you see, those who truly seek after Jesus will want to worship Him. We also know there are many people today, like the religious rulers of Jesus' day, that when it comes to Jesus, the best word to describe them is, is apathy. Apathetic towards Him. And finally, we'll see in the life of Herod what we see in a lot of people's attitudes today, outright hostility towards the Lord. But we begin with number one, worship. Look at verses one and two. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem saying, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we have seen his star in the east and have come to worship him. I like that Matthew records for us that Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea. It's because I can turn in the history books secular history books, and find out there, there's a Bethlehem. I know where it's at. You know, I can find out where Judea is at. You don't have to scrap history when you look to the scriptures concerning Jesus' birth because history is his story. Even secular history reveals to us the birth of Jesus Christ. Now this begins, the story begins with these wise men who came to worship Jesus. Drop down to verse 11. And when they had come into the house, they saw the young child with Mary, his mother, and fell down and worshipped him. And when they had opened their treasures, they presented gifts to him, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. See, these two verses alone that we just looked at just blew away the perfect picture you have of the manger scene at Christmas time. First of all, it doesn't say that there were three wise men that came from the east. It just says here that there were wise men from the east came to Jerusalem. In fact... 99.9% of the time, the Magi that would travel, they would travel in huge caravans consisting of hundreds of servants. In fact, most Bible theologians suggested it was a group of 10 to 15 men. It could have been any number of men, but we certainly don't see it limited to three. And they probably, you know, wore these uh, long cone hats that would be typical of the, of the Magi or astrologers of the day. And they wouldn't be riding camels. You know, they would have rode Persian steeds or Arabian horses. You know, they'll come riding into town. They're Arabian horses, you know, like the, you know, like the Harleys, you know. Okay, here's all the horses. And, and it was an entourage. I mean, it was, a, it was a small army with them. It would have been quite a sight. So again, you can throw out the whole three wise men deal of different colored outfits are on three camels. That's not the way it was. Secondly, it says in verse 11 about these wise men that when they they'd come into the house. So you have not a specific number of wise men who are not coming to a manger, but they're coming to a house. See, by this time, Jesus had already been dedicated in the temple. So more than likely, this is about two years after the whole stable thing. Besides, as soon as Jesus was born, I'm sure they're going, okay, we got to get out of here. We got to find someplace else to stay. They didn't go, you know, we need to contact Chip and Joe and, and see about fixing up the place. This will be a real fixer upper. No, they said, we got to find a house. Now, what's also interesting is that, that, you know, we don't see anywhere in here that these men have names. But according to tradition, back in medieval, medieval times, they gave them names. Belshazzar, Gaspar, or Casper, and Melchor. 
They even have their song, you know, we three kings of Orion are, da 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 you know, following it. And you can just picture them right into the beat of the music, you know, we three kings of Orion, you know. Yeah, come on, Tom, you shouldn't make fun of them. You're not making fun of them, but making fun of the tradition. Because the image of the three men and, and the baby Jesus in the manger, let's just say it's a little misleading. So here's the thought on your nativity scene for this coming year. Go ahead and set it all up, but then keep the three wise men to one side for a couple of weeks, maybe later on. Then bring it in. As you get closer, bring it in there, and, and you kind of get the gist of this. See, the Bible doesn't tell us what their names were. It doesn't tell us how many there were. It certainly doesn't tell us that they had their own personal song that they sang, but it doesn't even tell us they were kings. But what do we know about them? We know that they were highly revered and respected in their culture. These were the intellects of the day. They were men that were skilled in, in astronomy and, yes, astrology, various occult practices, including sorcery, and they were noted for their ability to interpret dreams. And it's from their name, Magi, that we get the word magician from or, or magic is derived from. And because of their combined knowledge of science and mathematics, history and the occult, they had this, this incredible religious and political influence. So the kings would, would look to them to, to, you know, interpret their dreams. If you remember the story of King Nebuchadnezzar, when Nebuchadnezzar had some disturbing dreams, what did he do? Well, he called the Magi. And in, and in this particular situation, uh, you know, Nebi, he said, hey, listen, I'm not going to tell you my dream. You tell me the dream and you tell me the interpretation of it. And they couldn't do it. And, and, but then God does through Daniel, the, the, the miraculous there. But even so, these, these Magi guys, they're prominent in the Neo-Persian and Babylonian empires. Now, clearly the Lord doesn't condone their activities. You know, it's not okay to, to dabble in the occult like that. It's simply saying that these men who were looking to the stars, they were deceived. But deep down in their hearts, they wanted to know the true God. Listen to Jeremiah twenty nine thirteen. It says this, And you will seek me and find me when you search for me with all your heart. See, I believe if someone is really searching for God, they will find him. If there's a man or a woman out there, they may be caught up in some false religious system. They may be uh, involved in a cult like Mormonism or Jehovah Witnesses or, or the Church of Scientology or a myriad of other false teachings, some New Age religion. They might even be into the occult. But, but if they truly desire to seek God, to know the true and living God, God will reveal Himself to them. God will come to them in a way that they can understand. What was the way in which God came to these wise men in a way that they would understand? Well, they looked to the stars. So God sent a star. And the star led them to the one who created the stars, Jesus. How about many of Jesus' disciples? What were they? Well, they were fishermen. How did Jesus reach them? Through fishing. Jesus said to them, follow me and I'll make you fishers of men. And they immediately left their nets and followed him. How about you? What did God use in your life to bring you into that relationship with Him? Have you ever thought about that? Mine was music. You know, I was in the music and this radio station was playing rock and roll songs about Jesus. Oh, that is cool. You know, now we have contemporary Christian music all over the place. But back in, in my day, back in my day, back in the early 70s, it was cool. And then, you know, I'm listening to that music and I'm like, I, I kind of like that. You know, this is kind of a Christian deal to it. And then, all of a sudden, that, that, that theme song to the word for today with Pastor Chuck. If you listen to Pastor Chuck, you know, oh, let the Son of God, you know, they'd play, play the song, and, and Chuck would come on the radio and he would teach 
verse by verse, book by book, chapter by chapter, and go, wow, I never heard that before. That's amazing. The Bible says that. The Bible says this. But what was it that got my attention? It was that, that music, the, 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 the music. God used what in, was in my life, what I enjoyed, to get my attention to point me to the true God. You may be into music and God uses the music of some individual or group to share the gospel. Whether you're into airplanes, sports, cars, whatever. You know, occult, eastern religions. You may have had a religious bent or scientific bent or artistic bent and God used that to get you to ask the right questions as these wise men did in verse 2. Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we have seen his star in the east and have come to worship him. I believe that's exactly what they wanted to do. They wanted to worship him, and they did. Again, in verse 11, it says, And when they had come into the house, they saw the young child with Mary, his mother, and fell down and worshipped him. This word worship, it's full of meaning. It expresses the idea of of falling down, of of prostrating oneself, and and kissing the feet or the hem of the garment of the one who is honored. So here we have these men of great importance. You know, they, they got their, their hats on, their, 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 their garments, you know, all that. And, and they just come and they just prostrate themselves before Jesus, kissing his feet, worshiping him. And I want you to notice here that they did not worship Mary and Jesus. They only worshiped Jesus, him alone. He was the object of the worship. And even though they came from a pagan background, they were exercising true faith in, true, in the true God and they worshiped him. And it was shown in, in, in practical ways. They, they had gifts for the Lord. Verse 11, it says, When they had opened their treasures, they presented gifts to Him, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Now, if you were a parent back then, or even today, we're going, okay, this is great. Gold is good. I, I can see that one. But uh, I don't know about these other things. It reminds me of a story of a little boy coming home after Sunday school class about the birth of Jesus. And it was asked by his mom what he learned. And he told her. He learned that there were Three maggots that gave baby Jesus gifts of gold, Frankenstein, and Smurfs. Actually, it seems that God had given these wise men special spiritual insight into the mission and the ministry of Jesus through these gifts. Amazing. Gold because he is a king. Frankincense or incense because he would be our high priest representing us to God. That's what the high priest did in in the temple. They would bring the incense in. And then finally, myrrh. Myrrh was a sap that came from a tree in Saudi Arabia. It was used for perfume. It was a spice, but it was also used for embalming fluid. When Jesus died, 100 pounds of spiced myrrh, it says, and aloes were mixed for his burial. So it was typically used for embalming fluid. Now I think for all the gifts you'd want to get as a parent for your, your baby, I very much doubt that embalming fluid would be high on the list. I think you'd kind of be offended by this. But this was a prediction This was a a prophecy of the king that would die for the sin of the world. Gold, frankincense, and myrrh. See, a part of their worship of the Lord was was through these gifts, giving to the Lord. It was an expression of their worship out of this adoring, grateful heart. They were, were blessed to give of their best to the Lord in worship. Listen, that should should be how it should be with us. We should never feel reluctant to give anything to God. We should never feel like we should hold back. And I don't just mean our resources or our money, but I mean our time and our energy and our thoughts. We should be giving in such a way that it's extravagant in the way that, that, that we give to the Lord. 
I think of a, of a different Mary who came to Jesus one day and took that special perfume that she had been saving worth thousands of dollars and she broke it open and the fragrance filled the room and she began to anoint the feet of Jesus. And what happened? And there was the one that criticized it, none other than Judas, and, 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 and said, oh, this, this could have been sold and the money could have been given to the poor. What a waste. And Jesus points out it's not a waste. Nothing is ever a waste if it's given in the right heart and worship to Jesus Christ. You know, sometimes people will look at, at people who, who have dedicated their life to go out on, on the mission field. Man, God is calling me to give up my job and, and, and just to go and go to this, this place under the mission field. And people say, oh, how could you do that? I mean, look at how much you're making at this job. Look at this, this nice home you have and this nice car. I mean, what a waste, you know. No, it's not a waste. It's giving extravagantly to the Lord. It's never a waste. Don't ever feel like when you give to God that you're wasting anything. It's only when you hold back that you're wasting. See, right worship is always the right motive for right giving. Now you might say, well, when you say worship, do you mean songs that we sing in church? Yeah, certainly worship consists of the songs that we sing in church. But it's so much more than that. In fact, the very reason that we're put on this earth was so that we might worship Him and glorify Him and know the God who created us. Because in reality, man's ultimate purpose in life is not to attain success or fame or even happiness per se, but man's ultimate purpose in life is to know the God who made him. And until we enter into that relationship, we are falling short of what is possible and attainable to us. In fact, the Scriptures tells us, tells us in Revelation that there are those in heaven singing, Thou art worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power, for Thou hast created all things, and for Thy pleasure they are and were created. You see, I was created to bring pleasure to God. You were created to bring pleasure to the Lord. You were created to worship the Lord. And when it comes down to it, everybody worships something. Everybody worships something. Some worship a God of their own making. Others worship the true and living God. But everyone worships something. And the reason for that is that God has created man with a drive inside each of us. We're created with this sense that there's something more to this life than what we're experiencing on this earth. The Bible tells us in Ecclesiastes 3.11 that God has placed eternity in our hearts. That simply means that there's a recognition, that sense that there's something more in life. Now, there are those that teach, well, we just evolved from, from, from animals. That's certainly not true. The Bible clearly teaches that God uniquely created man in his own image. He did not create animals in that way. God has not created or placed eternity in the heart of a bird or a cat. Definitely not a cat. I don't know what he's placed in our hearts. I think it's rebellion and destruction, but... but not eternity in the heart of a cat. And I know he hasn't placed it in the heart of a dog either. Now, I don't own a dog, but my daughter, Laura, does. And her little dog, Bentley, you know, I know that he doesn't sit around all day, you know, thinking about the holiness and the love of God. Nor does he contemplate the wonders of eternity. I'm sure he's thinking about those squirrels in the backyard running around that he just can never catch. He thinks about eating, and he thinks about you throwing his toy a hundred million times. All right, I'll throw it again, you know. In fact, you really got to wonder what dogs think about. You know, you, you, you look at a dog and, and it looks at you and you think that they're thinking, oh, you are the master and I am the lowly animal. But I think it's the other way around. 
I think the dog thinks, I'm the master and you are their personal slave. I mean, why wouldn't they think that? I mean, he probably looks at your house and goes, this is my house. This is my yard. This is my kingdom. This is my domain. These people work for me. And we prove it to them, don't we? Right? We get up in the morning and we bring them food and we bring them water and, 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 you know, we tell them we love them and we pet their heads and they think, that's right, my servants. I expect this two more times per day. They think they're in charge. I'm certain of that. But, of course, God has not placed eternity in the heart of the animal. He's only placed it in, in the heart of man. And that urge causes people everywhere to worship. Now, you can either worship a false god, a god of your own making, a god that, uh, that, that you have brought out of your own imagination, or the one and only true god. But sometimes you hear people say, well, let me tell you something. My God, my God would never condemn anyone to hell. My God, uh, you know, would, would never bring a penalty for sin. My God is all loving and caring. My God is this and my God is that. Let me say, your God doesn't exist anywhere except in the realm of your own imagination. Because when you talk like that, you're not speaking of the true God. You're speaking of your own little God, little G, that you've created in your own image. But the true and living God. The one and only God, the God of the Bible, is the one that we should worship and Him alone should we bow down to. Now understand that word worship comes from an old English word meaning worth-ship. It means to worship something because it merits your worship. It's worthy of praise. It's worthy of adulation. So when we you know, come together to worship the Lord, we open our service with a song. and We say, well, let's all worship the Lord together. And we stand up and we worship and we start singing these songs. Now why do we do that? Well, it should be because we love the Lord. Now, should we do it because we're really in a, in a good mood and we feel like it? But if I'm not in a good mood, then, then I don't have to worship? No. We should do it always because God is worthy. No matter what I'm going through, no matter what my circumstances are, God merits my worship. Psalm 107 verse 1 says, Oh, give thanks to the Lord for He is good, for His mercy endures forever. Psalm 34, 1 tells us, I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. And Psalm 113, 3, from the rising of the sun to its going down, the Lord's name is to be praised. I can go on and on, but the point is we should worship God in spite of our circumstances, in spite of how we feel, in spite of what we're going through, because God merits and deserves my worship. That is why we should engage when we worship together. It's really not a, a, appropriate to say, well, well, I don't really want to worship. Listen, you were created to worship God. I mean, how can you just say, I'm not going to worship today? God made you to worship Him. God made you to bring Him pleasure. God is, is pleased when we worship Him with a proper heart. It's something we're commanded to do. And I'll tell you this little secret. Sometimes when you worship the Lord, your problems, they won't go away, but many times they don't seem as big. And, and, and it's not because your problems disappeared. It's because you reevaluated things. I mean, when you came into the church, the problems were like right here. They were huge. Then you begin to worship the Lord. And, and all of a sudden, you know, the Lord is magnified. We magnify the Lord. And He gets bigger and bigger and bigger. And our problems get smaller and smaller and smaller. Because as, as we worship the Lord and sing of His power and glory and splendor and love for us, you suddenly have the right perspective you have the Lord in the right perspective. He can take care of whatever it is I'm going through. And worship can turn into the most, you know, miserable circumstances into a wonderful, wonderful time. 
I think of the story of Paul and Silas. You know, they were arrested for preaching the gospel. They had their, their backs ripped open with, with a, a, you know, with a whip, and, and they're there put in a cold, dark, stinking dungeon. Their, their feet in stocks, and the Bible says at midnight, Paul and Silas worshiped the Lord and began to sing praises to God. I mean, could you imagine that scene? Now, this wasn't mind over matter. It was, oh, I don't feel the pain. I don't, I'm, you know, I don't, I don't. No, it wasn't that. It was faith over circumstances. And I'm not talking positive thinking. I'm simply talking about honoring the true God that is still on the throne no matter what you're going through. Yeah, he may deliver you immediately from your situation. He did with Paul and Silas. There was an earthquake and, and the walls came tumbling down and, and we talk about bringing the house down, but they were released. But, but sometimes God will change your circumstances and sometimes he won't. But either way, he's worthy of all of our worship. So here we have these wise men coming to worship the newborn king. And that brings us to our second point. The next response to the newborn king is from the chief priests and the scribes, the religious authorities at their time. And we kind of see their response to all of this. And that's number two, point number two, apathy. Look at verses three and four. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with them. And when he had gathered all the chief priests and scribes of the people together, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. So the wise men come to Herod. They say, hey, you know, the, the king's going to be born here. And so he gets all of them together to find, try and find out the chief priests and the scribes. He said, listen, I need to talk to you guys. You know, some really whacked out guys came riding in on their Harley horses. And, and, and they, 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 they're, you know, they're asking about this new king, you know, king of the Jews. What do the scriptures say, say about this? Does it say anything about this? And no doubt, you know, these, these scribes, these chief priests, they, they adjusting their fancy robes, they... <clears throat> Why, yes, it does. And they quote Micah 5, 2 in verse 5 here. Look at verse 5 and 6. So they said to him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for thus it is written by the prophet, but you, Bethlehem, and the land of Judah, are not the least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Here they are saying, this is what's going to happen. We have the know. We know what's going on. Now here's what's amazing and pathetic. We have these guys who have dedicated their lives to the study of scriptures. They're making copies of scriptures, which was way before the invention of the printing press. They would have to write each page out by hand. And if they made one mistake at the bottom of the page, they had to tear the whole page out and start over again. They knew scriptures backwards and forwards, and they were immediately able to give Herod the answer to their questions. The king will be born in Bethlehem. Now, the wise men, they spent months, perhaps even years, to make this journey from the east. They crossed deserts, invested money, expended a great deal of energy to seek the Lord. The scribes and religious leaders, familiar with Scripture, knowing the Word of God, didn't even get off their feet to travel five miles for the Messiah. They made no attempt to go to Bethlehem for themselves. Five miles away from the Son of God, and they did not go to see Him. Amazing. Why? Apathy. Apathy. Really quite simple religion. They had religion. You know, same thing week after week. We do the same thing week after week. And, 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 and just, just they're used to going at the same thing, same thing. They're busy with their, their rituals, their traditions. They, they, they miss the arrival of the long way to the Messiah. And when they finally realized, you know, came to Jesus, they crucified him outside their walls. Problem is, they weren't willing to... to, to to, to move outside of their, their tradition. They, Jesus wasn't fitting into their religious system. 
They weren't, weren't looking for, for a Messiah that would die on a cross. They were looking for a Messiah that would overthrow the Roman government. They wanted a Messiah that would establish his kingdom now. They weren't looking for a Messiah to wear a crown of thorns. They wanted him to wear a crown of gold and establish his kingdom. And yet Jesus established his rule and reign in the hearts of men and women first. Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world. But this should be a, a lesson to us on apathy and religiosity. It can be a deadly trap. You know, rules and rituals can make a person feel spiritual when they're not. Oh, you know, I came to church and, and yeah, I did that and yeah, we had communion and, and we did that and all that. You know, they get caught up in all of that stuff and miss a real relationship with Jesus Christ. Listen, I've been there. I've done that growing up in Catholicism. Week after week, we did all the ritual. Let me say this. Religion can damn a person to hell just as sure as immorality can. I've been going to church all my life. I love Jesus. Yeah, but do you know Jesus? Have you asked Him to forgive you of your sin? Are you living for Him today? Because again, what we see here in this reaction to Jesus' arrival is apathy. They, they liked the way things were going. They weren't ready to, to give Jesus the proper worship that was due His name. You know what Jesus thinks of that? Makes Him sick. Makes Him sick. Listen to what he said in, in Revelation 3, verse 15 through 17. I know your works, that you're neither cold nor hot. I could wish that you were cold or hot. So then because you are lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will vomit you out of my mouth because you say I'm rich and become wealthy and have need of nothing and do not know that you are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. Listen, apathy is a serious condition that we must always be on guard against. Let me tell you, the, the, the cure for apathy is worship. Worshiping the Lord. Coming here week after week and having right hearts. Being in God's Word. And you recognize how great God is. You can't stay apathetic towards Him. You have to worship Him. And this brings us to our final point. Our final person's reaction to Jesus Christ. Number three, outright hostility. Symbolized by Herod. Let me tell you a little background about this guy. It's not pretty. And he kind of helps you understand his response to Christ being born on planet Earth. Herod was a very, very cruel ruler. It was said in those days that it was safer to be Herod's pig than to be his son. Because Herod would murder anyone who got in his way of his rule. Anyone who he felt somehow was threatening to him, including his own family. Now, in addition to his rule, he had nine wives, most of them just for influential gain. He had murdered several of his sons as well as several of his wives when he thought that they were, they were challenged to his authority. He was so cruel that he actually put together an ordinance that on the day that he would die, he was so concerned that no one would mourn his death that on the day he died, he said that all the chief rulers should be put to death so that there would be mourning on the streets. Now, I'm glad to tell you that the rulers were wise enough not to do that after he died. Hey, the guy's dead. We ain't going to do that. But you can understand what a, what a creep this guy was. So when it says in verse 3 concerning the news about Jesus that Herod the king was disturbed and troubled and the whole of Jerusalem with them. Well, why was the whole of Jerusalem troubled with them? Because when Herod wasn't happy, neither was the people in Jerusalem. A lot of insecurity in this guy's life. And because of it, he wanted to rule everywhere and everything. He was a, you know, he wanted to be on the throne, but he couldn't. And the reason I give you this backdrop to Herod is I think it plays an important part as we look at the unsaved world today. Many people with the Herod-like attitudes, 
They got themselves in their own thrones. They don't want to recognize Jesus. They don't want to surrender, you know, when it comes to, to their life to Jesus Christ. When it comes to the recognition about who Jesus is, they'll say, well, tell me about him. Go ahead, tell me about him. And as you reveal the truth about who he is and what, what he came to do, not only do they reject it, but they, they want to refute it. And they want to argue with you. See, they're only out to kill and destroy anything that Christ stands for because they're so afraid of allowing Jesus to rule over their lives that, that it's the worst thing that can happen to them. They're deceived. Satan has caused that blindness in his life. They don't know that, that Jesus said in John 10.10, I've come that they may have life and they may have it more abundantly. People, unsaved, are, are so deceived into thinking that the Christian life is boring and unfulfilling. It couldn't be further from the truth. They think that holding on to their sin, they find happiness. But true happiness comes from a, a right relationship with Jesus Christ. So into town come these wise men on their beautiful horses and their little army. And what do they say? We have come to see the king of the Jews. Ooh, not a good statement to say to Herod. Herod thought he was the king of the Jews, which was his title. It was given to him by Caesar Augustus. So to Herod, he was the king of the Jews. And here come these guys saying, we're looking for the king of the Jews. So what does he do? What does he do? Look at verse 7. Then Herod, when he had secretly called the wise men, determined from them what time the star appeared, and he sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the young child. And when you have found him, bring back word to me that I may come and worship him also. What a liar! He didn't want to worship him. He wanted to kill him. Verse 13. Herod will seek the young child to destroy him, Joseph was warned. That was Herod's plan all along. He didn't want to worship Jesus. You see, just as the wise men were true worshipers, Herod was a false one. He was hostile to God. He wanted to destroy and uproot and oppose God, yet he masqueraded as a worshiper of God. You know, we have a lot of Herods all over the world today sitting in the pews of many churches. Outwardly, they appear, you know, devout and deeply religious, but they're living a lie. They, they don't know God. They don't have a relationship with Him. They may lift their hands. They may sing the songs. They may give in the offering. They may do the right things, but that doesn't make you a true worshiper. God looks at your heart. If your life is not right with God when you come into church and sing and, and go through all the rest of it, not only does it not please God, it's offensive to Him. In fact, in, in a couple of passages, God says, take away the singing of your songs, keep your feasts that make me sick. I don't want to hear it. Because you're contradicting by your lifestyle what I want from you is obedience, he says. He says in Hosea 6, 6, he says, I want to show you love, not offer sacrifices. I want you to know me more than I want burnt offerings. So there's a lot of false worshipers today, and Herod was one of those people. Same way there are those who are outright opposed to Christ and the Christians. And we've seen that in our culture today. Listen, we are the visible representation of Jesus Christ. We are, are chips off the old rock. And when someone finds out you're a Christian, usually if they have anything against God, man, they're going to dump it on you right away. Haven't you found that out? Has that ever happened to you? comes up, I'm a Christian. Really? Is that so? And you can see the wheels turning in their eyes. Well, let me ask you this, Mr. Christian. If your God is so loving... And caring, why did this happen? Why does that happen? And why does he do that? And they're going to load on top of you. And, and, and that's okay, because we get an opportunity to, to show them God. But there's people like that that are hostile to God, and so they're going to be hostile to you. That's why it shouldn't come as a shock to you when people don't like you, simply because you name the name of Christ. I know that's hard for some of us, especially when you, when you 
generally you get along with people. You're, you're, you're a nice person. But then suddenly it comes out you're a Christian and people back off from you and, and they don't want to see you. Suddenly you're not invited over anymore. You're not asked to go out to dinner. You know They don't want you to be a part of their gang. They don't want you to be a part of what they're doing. And you kind of feel like an outcast. And you go, why? Jesus says, listen, they did it to me. They're going to do it to you. But know this. Think of this as a badge of honor. We're going to get to this in probably a couple months. Matthew 5, verse 11 and 12. Jesus said, Blessed are you when they revile and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad for great is your reward in heaven for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So when you hear TVs, they're blasting Christians and blasting what they do and are at work and they're blasting you for being a Christian. Man, you're blessed. You can rejoice because great is your reward in heaven. And don't worry about it. Stand up for Christ. Don't be ashamed of him. There's so many people that like Herod. They not only strike out at God, but they pretend to be something they're not. But in the end, they're going to reap what they sow. God's words promises it. In fact, drop down to verse 19 and we're going to close with this. Story closes in verse 19 by saying, Now when Herod was dead, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, but saying, Arise, take the young child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel, for those who sought the young child's life are dead. Then he arose, took the young child and his mother, and came into the land of Israel. So Herod was dead. Thus the immediate danger to Jesus was over. Now there's an ancient historian known as Josephus, and here's what he said of of how Herod died. He said, Herod died of ulcerated intestines, putrefied and maggot-filled organs, constant convulsions, foul breath that neither physicians uh, could help him with, nor warm baths could help. In other words, this guy died a miserable death. He had been a miserable man. He spent his whole life opposing God. He threw his life away. Tragic, pathetic, but in many ways a very fitting end to a very wicked man. But you see, it's just not him. In the end, folks, those who reject Jesus Christ, those who are hostile to his followers, will meet justice as well. God's word promises that. So we've seen three responses to Jesus Christ. Worship, apathy, hostility. Worship, those who seek after him to worship and follow him, symbolized by, by the wise men. You know, I, I like these guys, however many there were. You know, the Bible reveals to us, as that old bumper sticker used to say, wise men still seek him. Wise men, wise women still seek him. Seeking him, spending time at his feet, worshiping him, bowing before him, getting in his word, worshiping through his word. Number two, apathy. We saw that through the chief priests and the scribes, just caught up in religion, caught up in ritual. Just same thing week after week, not really worshiping the Lord. And finally, outright hostility symbolized by Herod. Person who's, whose heart says, yeah, I know what you say about Jesus, but I'm not going to get off of my throne to let him on the throne of my life. They're not willing to surrender their heart and life to him. They like their, their sin way too much. The question we need to close with this morning is what category do you fall into this morning? I hope and pray it's the one who wants to worship. And I believe it is because you're here this morning showing your love for God and his word, wanting to come to know Jesus. I pray it's not apathy. That's so easy for us to, to get set into that. Even here at Calvary, you know, just coming the same thing week after week. And, you know, we, we want to have some excitement. We do that through worshiping the Lord. And my final prayer is that it's not outright opposition to Christ. 
you're not hostile towards him. You know, you see, if you're running from God trying to resist his will for, for you, or worse yet, pretending to be a Christian when you're, really out, when you're really not, then it's time to make a change. It's time to give your life to Christ. I know for me, for years before I got saved, I thought I was a Christian. I went to church. I believed in God. I read the Bible occasionally. But one day I realized I didn't know Jesus. I really didn't have that personal relationship with him. And maybe for some of you, maybe you're beginning to realize that. You always thought you were a Christian because you're, you're an American, right? Oh, I'm American. I'm a Christian. You always thought you were a Christian because you've gone to church throughout your whole life. But has there been a moment in your life where you said, Lord, come into my heart. Forgive me of my sin. I turn from this old life. I want to follow you now. I want to obey you. I want to be a true worshiper. If that's your desire this morning, as soon as service is over, I encourage you to come up front. The elders are up front. We want to pray with you and, and give you a Bible and help you in that, that walk with the Lord. If you want prayer for any other reason, you want to rededicate your life to the Lord. Maybe you've been, in some, been feeling apathetic. Man, come up so we can pray for you or any other prayer, any other prayer needs. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time, Lord. We thank you for your word. Lord, I, I want to remember our youth mission team. Lord, each one of these kids and, and adults that have gone on, Lord, as they're traveling right now, we pray that you'd give them traveling mercy. We pray that you would use each one of them in a powerful way, Lord, that you would open up divine opportunities for them. I know that they'll come back excited for you, Lord. And Lord, help us to have that excitement now in our lives, Lord. Help us not to be apathetic, Lord, or, or even, Lord, playing the game or not having a, a relationship with you, Lord. Help all of us here, Lord, to be on fire for you, Lord, worshiping you, our true God. We thank you for your love, grace. Thank you for going to the cross and dying for our sins so that we can be forgiven and be born again. And I pray, Lord, if there's anyone here that is yet to be born again, that they would not leave this place this morning, but they would turn to you and find that grace and mercy and forgiveness. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's all stand and we'll do one last song together.